Hello and welcome to the Teaching with Tech podcast. Today is very exciting because this is episode one of season two. So we've got a brand new season for you. My name is Tab Betts and we're coming to you from Technology Enhanced Learning at the University of Sussex. So if you go back and listen to our previous episodes, um, which you can find at soundcloud.com forward slash teaching with tech, you will find that our last episode of Teaching with Tech was the Pod Blast, so the Great Sussex Pod Blast, which was about an event we held here at Sussex where we got a group of complete beginners to podcasting, and within the space of three and a half hours, we got them to record an entire podcast series from scratch. Um, so they planned it, recorded it, edited it, and uploaded it, published it to the internet, all in the space of three and a half hours. So that's a really great episode there, a little mini-series that you can catch up on. It's also our sibling show. We recently had the Tell Us podcast had its Christmas special, where we had Professor Sol Becker, who is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Sussex. He came in and um, we had a discussion about the future of learning and also uh, an exciting Christmas quiz where he was the quiz master. So check that out as well. But today, our very first episode of the new series, um, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Maria Kukurava from uh, the University of Bedfordshire. She's an educational developer um, and she's also a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy. Um, and she works in the Centre for Learning Excellence at Bedfordshire. So today we're going to be talking about object-based learning, which is a really interesting um, approach to teaching and learning that I saw her present at a conference earlier this year. So uh, let's hear from Maria now. So Maria, for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, could you please just briefly introduce yourself and uh, tell us what you do? Hi Tab, thanks. Um, yes, so um, I work as an educational developer at Bedfordshire, as you said, and um, uh, quite a big part of my activity is teaching on the postgraduate certificate for higher education, so mostly new lecturers. Um, I also do various other things, um, supporting current lecturers in their work, be it with curriculum design, teaching practice, or some, some aspects of learning technology. So that's, that's quite, quite broad. Um, my specific interest that's related to today is um, teaching practice and creativity of teaching practice. And I'm very interested in method. Um, in teaching method and uh, well in learning method of course um, connected to that and um, yeah so uh, and one of the areas of that in particular that interests me is looking at discipline specific methods teaching methods and seeing how they compare or they contrast mm, so that's, that's an interesting one because in, mm. I, you know I think in both of our jobs we work across different disciplines is that right, That's right. Yeah. yeah so it's kind of look comparing how the discipline specific pedagogies compare with one another yeah well yes and, and I think they do I mean whether they just intuitively do or wh whether the way people teach is always sort of science driven let's say or more sort of uh, disposition driven almost discipline driven that's a big question and we once had that debate you know whether it's is it, is it the disciplines that then um indoctrinate us almost or is it the types of people that teach different in different ways you know but either way there is a massive variety and i'm interested in 
the scope of cross-pollinating that, of sharing methods amongst disciplines and sort of enriching learning practice through that. Mm, that sounds brilliant. And I think we'll get into probably some of that once we get into the main topic. Before we get onto that, though, um, I just wanted to double check. Did I get your name right just now? Because we did a little bit of practicing before we started, didn't we? <laughs> we did. I mean... I think I got it wrong, didn't I? Do you want, do you want to tell us your, your full name? Sure, uh, it's Maria Kukareva, and this is, this is your sort of assessment and feedback and practice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, well, because we were talking about the Russian pronunciation, right? Yeah. So how, how, sh how is it actually said? The, the, the English version is Kukareva, but the Russian, were, the Russian name would be Kukareva, which is quite different, but probably unpronounceable. Um, but it's but it but it's good to know. So um, we're great. So now that we we know who you are and what you do, um, what teaching and learning approach um, or case study would you like to share with us today? What are we going to be talking about? Okay, so I'll be talking about object-based learning, and uh, I will expand it a little bit to using objects and images in a broad sense. Um, so, so that's in brief and obviously you um, came to my workshop, which was lovely and uh, it was very well received I have to say it was at the active learning conference at Anglia Ruskin University in September 17 uh, And I presented it I developed this workshop and presented with two colleagues and one of them happens to be a librarian and special collections expert and another colleague is uh, so so that's Anne Lawrence and Kat Cole, the third colleague works for IOE and she works um, in academic English. So we actually talked about object-based learning relating to teaching academic English in that, in that um, uh, particular um, example, but, but, but there are many more uses and uh, opportunities there. Yeah, can I just say something at that, at that point? Because, well, firstly, I want to say that, yeah, I came to the workshop and was really inspired. I thought it was a fantastic workshop, um, really enjoyed it. But it's interesting you're saying about your colleague being um, teaching kind of academic writing and that kind of mm, thing. Because, mm, that's right, that's right. Um, I also have a background in language teaching. And one of the approaches that is used in language teaching is using realia, so using kind of real objects. And it's mm. kind of an obvious thing with teaching a foreign language because... Um, it, it requires you to use a lot of vocabulary, but again, uh, tell us a bit more. What what is yeah. object-based learning? Yes, um, well, I may not be able to cover everything object-based learning is and can be, but I'll I'll, I'll highlight some aspects of it. Um, so, um, I I was interested in objects as a way to, um, I suppose, capture and bring to the forefront the way we think. And the way we think is very important to the way we learn and the way we then, I suppose, um, capture and then present information. So as students, you know, we have to, um, we have right. to, um, to somehow formulate our thoughts and then present them in a way of a written piece of work or presentation or any other way. Um, and, not, and, and I used to teach, um, b before um, this current role, I actually did teach academic writing as well. Mm. Um, and uh, and, and it, it, it sort of captivated me um, how, how, how those uh, insights are born before they get onto paper. Because as you will be aware, let's say critical thinking and critical writing, it's very hard to teach one without the other. But the thinking is much harder to capture and to actually see and to do anything with it it's only when it becomes writing 
that we can then see how the thinking went. But was it always like that? <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Like, yeah, because it's abstract. The thought is abstract, right? It's almost like multiple drafts, only there in our heads. So it's, yeah. it's very hard to capture that. Um, and, um, and I was always very interested in, in the way we make connections. So let's say when we teach um, and be it academic writing or let's say information literacy, um, the librarians work with or uh, formulating thoughts about any topic in any given subject. Um, it's very abstract. Isn't it? So we, we, we continue teaching and telling students over and over again, you need to be more critical, you need to be more creative here. Then we try to really articulate what it is we mean. Sometimes we get there, sometimes we don't. So there's a lot of that there. And it's very uh, hard to explain, isn't it? It is, but also people think differently. Uh, yes. The way we arrive at the same conclusion even sometimes is, is, it can be very different. So, and how frustrating for a student, right? If you've got different people giving you different definitions of critical thinking. Well, yes, and then, and then um, I suppose we, when we give that advice, we don't really know whether, let's say, well, we can guess from the student's work, whether the student is more logical or, let's say, sort of more ad hoc creative, but then, then still gets there in their own way. So we all have different heads, I think. I mean, they can be sort of categorized to a point. Um, so I was always very interested in that, and I thought images and objects... Um, may help us make those connections more evident. So it's almost like um, the way we use them, and I'll talk about it a bit more in a minute, is uh, if, you, if you have groups of objects, we worked always with groups of objects and images, and that's what you um, took part in when you came. Um, and in a way, it's very similar to, let's say, getting... Um, being presented with sets of data or types of data and then almost like moving it around and thinking how these things can connect can they all, all the, um, the, the truth is there could be several types of connections between groups of images and objects uh, and it will depend on your topic on the way um, on, on sort of what you're more drawn to as a person as a student etc so so uh, but it makes it much more tangible than let's say your literature search or trying to keep several thoughts together and connect them before you put them on paper. Does that make sense? Definitely. And I think, I think that's so important because in higher education, we can get so far away from what's kind of physically tangible. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be very difficult as a student coming into that, especially if you've been used to different ways of learning in another context in, in your you know, secondary education or your um, college education, and then you come into an environment where things are a lot more abstract and theoretical. Mm. You know, if you can, if you can embody that in some way, make it tangible, make it physical, put it in somebody's hands, you know, mm. get them to use their body to engage with something in a tactile kinesthetic way, then it just makes learning so much more accessible, doesn't it? Well, it does. And there is literature um, uh, on multi-sensory learning, for example, that emphasizes the fact that, um, to achieve that sense of flow, that sense of focus, we need to have as many aspects as possible aligned with the task. Uh, so for example, if let's say a lecturer is speaking in the, in the, in the lecture room, but there will be noises and images and various other things that aren't um, related to, to the topic, it's gonna to be harder to pay attention, let's say, um, and keep the focus than if everything is somehow aligned uh with the topic that you're studying so using the objects and images with that task is keeping your uh, focus on that as well 
Um, and the, um, I mean, I, I really do believe, even, even though I'm a big fan of images, I think there is, there is value in, in using 3D objects as well. There is, uh, I mean, in very simple terms, th there is much more to interrogate and to turn around. It's almost like a Rubik's Cube, you know. You are examining, examining each side, which I think, even though I can see total value with working with so many things on screen, uh, but that's taken away. And yes, of course, we could have a program that rotates objects, actually, but then the tactile element is not there. So I'm not, I'm not completely convinced that we can remove ourselves away from sort of actual 3D objects and, and the serial photographs. The, the sense of touch is, is important because it actually promotes flow. So you still, you still are with right. that object. So you've mentioned flow a couple of times now. Um, are you referring to the, um, the work of Chicksamahai on the idea that you have to try and achieve flow states, which is kind of like optimal um, peaks, peak, op optimal performance? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, and it's connected to focus as well, very much so. So uh, you are in that zone, if you like. I, and, um, well, yeah, that's the way it's commonly talked about, isn't it? Being in the zone. Yeah. Yes, yes, indeed. And um, object-based learning and working with images is connected to deeper um, learning in literature. So again, uh, and that's related to flow as well. So, so at that deeper level, you're more engaged. And ultimately, uh, everything we do is to increase student engagement, you know, and, and actually to help them connect with the topic, with the discipline on a deeper level, create that connection and keep that. Um, so, I wouldn't say objects and images solve all the issues that we have, but they can really help um, in some instances. And um, they really help to, um, to develop that process of inqu inquiry that I think is, again, quite intangible. Brilliant. Okay. So, could you um, talk us through an object-based learning session, like for example, the session you did for us um, mm. or, or another session, what, mm. what, what would it be like in practice? What would a session be like? Sure, sure. Well, there is a variety of ways you can do this and, and I'm, I'm very happy, if someone's interested, I'm very happy to talk about different ways of doing it. The easiest way would be, of course, for me to describe um, what, what we did, my colleagues and I did. Um, so we were quite lucky to work with um, archive objects. So we had quite unique objects on our hands, which was lovely. Uh, and they came from Bedford College of Physical Education that's based in Bedford and the University of Bedfordshire has access to them. Um, so we, um, in the session that you attended, we asked um, groups of participants to first uh, look at photos that we gave um, them and write down as many questions as you can think of. So first of all, it's very open. It doesn't have to be in, for other um, situations, but in this instance, we decided to do that. So, and, and at first you just write anything you can think about. The time limit is quite useful because it pushes you and it's still not a very sort of heavy activity. Um, so you just write anything you think about. We then, um, so we, we actually did two things with that. We then asked people to compare questions and what we found is, um, um, it, 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 it's possible that depending on your background or your interest, you may ask slightly different questions. Some questions are the same. What, where, when, uh, you know, when, who is it? When, when was it taken, um, etc. But then some things start happening. Uh, so for example, 
and I, and I can show you a couple of images actually that we used. Um, right. So and can I just check though? So that that initial activity was kind of like a think, pair, share type of thing, where you you're writing down questions on something, yeah. And you're comparing with a partner. Yes. And then with a group, is that right? That's right. So, so there is a lot of um, group work and partner work. There is some individual work as well. And interestingly, just sort of running ahead a bit, in our evaluation, even though we were mostly going for, let's say, um, discovery, learning, curiosity, um, critical thinking, social learning came through quite strongly. So most of the students that we did this work with, they did uh, say that one of the things they mostly enjoyed is is working as a group um which which you know we try to promote and students don't always like so absolutely so, so that was really lovely so just as an example and i'll try to hold them still so let's say we um we would have images like that mm. and especially for let's say younger students these wouldn't be too familiar they would be a little bit irrelevant for our times um, I don't know if you can make out. So there's lots of a, a bunch of people in sw swimming costumes. Yeah. And this is um, somebody's pretending to be a horse or a cow, and somebody's standing on their back and supported by by the third person. Um, so we we'll, we like to make the images quite sort of um, um, not not too straightforward, I suppose. So to just to keep that thought going. And the, the first thing that happens is we ask people to compare their questions and pairs, as, we, as, we, as I said. And um, while some questions are the same, other questions are different. And you quickly start realizing that not everybody thinks like you. So that's the first, that's the first interesting point. And, and, I, and I really enjoy that. And especially, let's say, if I work with a group of um, staff from different disciplines, that comes through even more strongly. So yeah. the same, what, what it's teaching us already, that absolutely the same image, it's not even 3D, it's 2D. That's all we see. Um, depending on who we are, we will be drawn to slightly different things. Yeah, you really emphasize that to us as well, to think about how the questions we chose mm. reflected who we were and, and our you know our, our, our backgrounds and, and that kind of thing so that immediately is a catalyst for critical thinking isn't it because you're starting to think well um how much how much do i know about this objective world around me mm. i'm i'm constantly seeing it differently to even the person just sitting next to me so yes and i think it's it's lovely for self-reflection for again if we go back to students um it, it's a nice exercise to quickly turn the student's eye onto who they are, who they think they are, how they think, but also expose them to a range of views in the room, just or slightly different ways of questioning. And again, if we take, them, take this exercise, um, make it transferable to something like uh, researching for a topic or having an opinion on a topic in the classroom, um, that's a really nice way to show them that things can be very different and whether they realize it or not. So from that point, then the exercise becomes a little bit more about connections. And we then, in the session that I delivered um, with my colleagues, uh, we then gave you um, a set of different artifacts and some images as well. And we asked you to then see how everything that we um, gave you in, in, in sort of portions almost, uh, either helped you answer your questions or took you away uh, from your questions 
And this is where it becomes about connections, about, let's say, prioritizing certain information over other types of information and creating um, a narrative. I've been told off for that word because every time I would say, do me a narrative, I would end up with an Agatha Christie story from, from my participants. <laughs> uh, so again, but what it shows us as well, if you want to push towards imagination and curiosity, you can do that. Or if you want people to stay more with the facts as, as, as much as they can analyze the facts um, and be more critical rather than more imaginative, I suppose. So there's an element of flexibility there in the, in the approach. Yes. So really, um, if you think about it, you can, depending what your purpose is, you can ask the students to um, analyze these images and objects um, from a slightly different point of view. Another, another exercise we did was um, um, actually, I think, to with the same objects but it was about information literacy so we, we slightly changed the questions and we asked the students to compare different um, uh, types of literature and see which one's more credible or which one illuminates you more and then if you take let's say an image or um, a diary from that same college um, the diary was much more factual you can actually you know see, see the stamp date when it was published the author etc whereas with some images images or some other things there wouldn't be that information um, so you can do quite a lot with it. It really, um, I, I would think it's a very rich source of, um, well, criticality and creativity uh, mm. for work with students. And then somebody else, um, another colleague in my university, she um, actually ch uh, adapted this exercise for um, developing research questions with her students. So again, she's asked mm -hmm. to, the questions were more about what can you see, what can't you see, where, where are the gaps? Okay. So, um, so one of the things you can do, looking at what's missing, and that way then, let's say, incorporated it with online research, etc., and actually see where the gaps are. How do you find the gaps? That's a nice shift in focus, isn't it? Because rather than mm -hmm. focusing, we often focus on what's there. And so actually asking students to shift their thinking and, and say, okay, but what is missing? That's also adds another level of criticality to the process. Um, Absolutely. Mm. So I think that sounds really good. Um, are there any kind of challenges to using this approach? And is there any you know, way that they can be overcome? Yeah. Um, nothing that's sort of, I would say nothing that's more of putting than not, definitely. Um, one, of the, one of the challenges that, um there is i suppose is um um making making sure that your students are ready to participate that they are in that mind frame when they will be receptive to this type of exercise um, especially if you are using objects that are quite unique and different so for example uh, we did uh, this um let's say the same the, the same session with the same objects that you saw and um, so they're from like 50 to 100 years old would produce quite different response in let's say foundation year students compared to let's say third year masters or phd students so um so choosing the um objects that your audience will be more receptive of and more curious about is important i think so actually that's two so making sure you you actually warm your students up um 
so that they are curious enough to engage with that and explaining to them how they're gonna, they are going to then transfer that method they've just used to something that's much more relevant to their academic work on that day. Um, it's worked so far, but it, okay. it is a very conscious process on our part to make sure we make it clear. Mm, that sounds really it, helpful. Yeah, so why is it that we're doing it? How does it make sense? Yeah, what's the rationale for this yeah, approach? Yeah. yeah. I think from, from experience, um, sort of students at higher level, they make that transition quicker. Mm, okay, well, that's, that's worth bearing in mind then. So now I want to move on to talk about what value could learning technology bring to this process. Mm. Um, so I know that in the session we didn't really use any technology particularly, um, unless you consider the objects themselves as a kind of technology. So have you got any thoughts about how technology might be able to be used alongside object-based learning? Well, this is something I actually I'm hoping to look into further uh, next year. So this, this is my task for myself. Um, a couple of things uh, that can be done that I can think of. I mean, the easiest uh, thing to do is to actually um, um, allow the students or invite the students to use search engines such as Google to find the answers to their questions. So again, once you, once you, I suppose, woke, woke up their curiosity and, and let's say you've um, answered some of their questions by giving them more objects that interpret the initial objects somehow. Um, and they can compare, let's say, the assumptions that they made with the information that they found. So that's one, the easiest way of doing it. Because it's kind of live you, micro research in a way. Pretty much. And it, it yeah. has worked quite well. I mean, we've done that before. You just need to have time. I mean, with a session like this, time, time is important. So mm -hmm. it's, um, it's very difficult to do something meaningful in an hour, I would say. Yeah. So anything from an hour and a half to two hours is, is probably going to be much more useful. Um, then um, I know you and I talked about Padlet a little bit, and I think there is some scope there for the students to capture their thoughts, their questions. Uh, and again, I can see um, something like Padlet or maybe even Me Too that could capture, let's say, groups' ideas, because at the end, in the session that you attended, we ask you to then summarize it. So let's mm. say groups could, each group could let them post their own summary and then you could compare. Yeah, I think that would be useful. And you could also get them to, for example, take photos of the process or even record, you know, audio of their discussion when they're discussing the objects or, or even mm. create little videos and embed those in the Padlet wall. Um, of course, you'd need to, you know, deal with the consent issues and stuff like that. But it could, that could be quite an exciting way to, to have a record of, of the whole process. Mm. There is something else that I, I'm, I'm hoping can work. It, it, it's gonna, it would move us away a little bit from um, using 3D objects that I you know, promoted so heavily 10 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> but, the, the, there are, uh, but this may be necessary because ultimately uh, we may not have uh, enough images and objects at our disposal that, that are interesting for us and for the session that we're delivering. So using online resources, there, there is a resource that's called Open Arts Object, for example, mm. um, from the Open University, I believe. 
um, and various others, uh, depending what your session is, you may have to draw on collections that are online and incorporate them somehow. Whether you mix them maybe with some images and objects that you bring into the classroom uh, or not, that's, that's a question, but it's possible. That's interesting because it actually goes back to a, a kind of idea that emerged uh, you know, a lot earlier when the internet first came about. There was this idea of a web quest where you would kind of get students to go to different resources online and go on a little journey. Mm. Um, and and I, I quite like what you were saying because you're almost suggesting a sort of blended learning quest where you've got real objects, photographs in front of you, but maybe you're also looking at online resources and archives. And, and I suppose it would be much more representative of how it would happen in reality for the students as well. So I'm definitely not opposed to that. I think it's nice mm. to keep some of the tactile, tangible elements still um, to make it quite different. Students don't have that much of that these days, actually, where no. they, we do, do get to interrogate a, an object, you know. That's very true. Mm. So um, actually, on that note, though, I've been thinking about this. So what about virtual reality? So imagine yeah. if you had a headset on you were actually in this space but not only that if you could also have the tactile stimulation of holding the object in your hands like could that play into object-based learning or, or even augmented reality so imagine that you could hold the object in your hand and for example hold your smartphone up and use the camera to kind of get clues or, or other information about the object to kind of stimulate the discussion. What do you think about that? Is that something that could that could work? I'm sure it could work. My, my initial thought was um, somehow bringing a 3D object into the classroom seems much cheaper and much more <laughs> accessible than... Um, well, assuming you can get hold of it though, right? <laughs> um, yes, why not? I mean, especially if let's say you could then have any... I think where it... Where I see the value of it, let's let's do blue sky thinking for a minute. Yeah, is obviously you could then get access to an object that in real life probably would be in the national gallery um, or, you know, like a Fabergé exactly. or something that you could never ever touch. Right, like touch the Egyptian mummies or like you know, <laughs> any any kind of. I'm falling apart. I mean, yes. I, I see value in that definitely. So, so, so making something accessible that normally wouldn't be—that's interesting. But I think um, whatever it is we choose to do, I think the purpose is important. Yeah. Uh, and I think what I've learned um, from doing this is, I think a bit of a bit of um, random and unexpected is good. But the connections still need to be clear with the subject or with the topic that the students are studying. Um, yes. So, so again, if it's a if it's a Fabergé egg for something very related, or my Egyptian mummy, of course, I can see where we're both going with our interest. That's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I, I th yeah, I mean. It, I'd also like to emphasize though that obviously that's the blue sky thinking, but bringing it back to kind of reality. I mean, let's say you don't have access to any of these things. Mm. I mean, could I, could I create a classroom activity out of, for example, mm, just some objects that I have available to me right now? Like for example, I could say, um, I'm, I'm wearing a watch right now 
and um, this watch has got like a bunch of different time zones on it and, and stuff like that. And then I'm, I've got actually another watch on my other wrist, which is like a fitness watch. And then I've yeah. also got this mug that has, we were, we were talking about this earlier before the interview, but get stuff done. Okay. So from these three things, you could make all kinds of kind of um, judgments about what kind of person I might be or, you know, what things I might be interested in. Right. Um, the, theoretically you can. So the quick answer is yes. Um, there is a little bit more to that, I think. So first mm -hmm. of all, again, we need to think of what is it that we want to achieve in the session. And let's say in, in, in 3D design, that's exactly what students do. Mm -hmm. They use everyday objects and they analyze them. Well, I don't want to say analyze them to death, but really yeah. you can. But you, so you could in that context. Yeah. So, in, you, you know, you could, um, you could think of colors, of the shape, of the material, of the cost, etc. So you can, you can connect it to pretty much any subject and, and, and that, you know, and that would be quite nice. At the same time, my um, personal sort of uh, position here is that objects that are slightly less familiar are better. Uh, I think yeah. we do anything we're not too used to. Take people and out of their sphere of familiarity, out of their yeah. comfort zone, kind of. And actually, in terms of discovery, discovery learning, let's say, and curiosity in learning, um, it's important. I mean, I definitely believe that we can and we should be curious about things that we think we know, but it may be a harder sell for the students. So having something mm -hmm. unfamiliar um, will sort of get you there quicker. Yeah, that's a great tip. And, and I think also it has that element of novelty. So exactly. yeah. And that, that, you know, can stimulate interest, can't it? So, um, okay. So could you just very briefly, I'm just thinking like a very quick, like one minute or, or, or two minutes maximum, tell us about a moment in your teaching that you think was particularly effective. Mm. Mm. Um, well, I think the, um, maybe if I can pick an example that I alluded to already. So I had one session where, uh, and I was teaching staff rather than students actually, but the subjectivities really came through and it was a little bit crazy considering, um, considering it's, um, the objects we use are from, a, from, a, from an archive that belongs to a college where women studied PE. So it's all women, it's physical education. I suddenly had, it was a, it was a very special afternoon. I had people talk about feminism, politics, gender, um, class. Um, I mean, they ripped, they, well, not literally, but uh, metaphorically, they ripped all my artifacts apart and critiqued, critiqued them, you know, and, and there was no st stone left unturned. It was quite something. Yeah, people, isn't that the goal to some extent? Yes, and actually, and, and I think I had people, people there who were more interested in the sports side and I had dance dance lecturers there who were uh, basically saying wow that's some balance she's holding this woman holding that pose how how is that working and then obviously I had education and social science lecturers who were having a little riot about inequality um, so uh, that was probably the most obvious um, I suppose, um, session where people's differences really came through. And that was really interesting. That's fantastic. That reminds me of what happened in my group when we did your session. So I don't know if you remember, but there was, 
there were two people in our group, um, one of whom was a man and one of whom was a woman. And um, they were looking at the photograph and we couldn't tell what gender the people were in the photograph. So, um, so I think the man was saying that he thought that the um, violence was being inflicted upon um, the woman. And, mm. But he was saying he thought that was strange because he, he lives in a family, you know, that has, that's full of women. And then the woman in our group was, was saying that she thought it was the opposite way around, that the violence was being inflicted on the man, but she lives in a family that is entirely, you know, made up of men, apart from mm. her. So <laughs> I think that's, that's just interesting how our perception of gender can, you know, can be influenced by our own personality. And that, that kind of debate between mm -hmm. the two of them was brought out by the activity. And I thought that was brilliant. Well, and um, yes, I remember that well, actually. And I think, again, let's say when we are with students, I would argue that the way we skim through literature, we will pick out different things because we already have those biases and predispositions often. Um, but I think um, I'm, I'm, I'm writing something in the moment around um, um, creativity and teaching. And I actually argue for subjectivity because I think we, we often so quickly push the students toward, towards objectivity that we don't allow that space where their own subjectivities can be explored. But actually understanding your own subjectivity and hearing others' mm. subjective views, you naturally sort of arrive at that objectivity rather than you have to learn it because someone is teaching you how to do it right now. So it, it actually is through that experience you arrive at that state. That's that interesting. I think that's, I think that's true. And I think it is about that interplay. And it reminds me actually of what John Stuart Mill talked about in terms of hearing all of the different voices and through mm. the diversity of those voices, the truth emerges. Um, yeah. So actually maybe that's important, like you say, in the classroom to let students have the space for that subjectivity. Well, yes, there is a book that I would really recommend. So it's edited by Helen Chatterjee and Leonie um, Hannon, and I'm just going to hold it up. I hope you can see okay, it. Okay, so it's, you're holding up a book called Engaging the Senses, yeah? Yes, Engaging the Senses, Object-Based Learning in Higher Education. And um, Excellent. there's several chapters written by different people around different ob uh, using objects in different settings and different subjects. Very good book. That's what inspired me at the start, actually. Sounds really good. Okay, well, great. And was, so, sorry, was there something else you wanted to add? Well, there was one last thing I wanted to add, and I don't yeah. remember the name, unfortunately, but there was one student who was first to ask the question, who is not in the photo? Who is the author? And, and it's I that what's missing that, thing again. So uh, a lot of people just uh, attack the photo and then, you know, again, latch onto every detail. But there was, then it happened a couple of times after, but there was one session when it happened first, one student said, who is, the, who is taking the photograph? Because in a way they framed it. And again, if we're thinking about literature and uh, critically approaching literature, um, in higher education. That was, that was very nice as well, I thought. Brilliant. Mm. That's great. So, um, finally, where can people contact you or find out more about what you do? Right. Well, I am on Twitter and I am on email. So, uh, um, presumably, um, and obviously on, I'll put my details on Padlet, which will be easier to read. But for now, I've prepared this wonderfully crafted piece of paper excellent so uh, at the moment she's holding up a, a card that says maria dot kukareva which is 
K-U-K-H-A-R-E-V-A at beds, B-E-D-S, B-E-D-S dot A-C dot U-K. Um, and it's at Maria underscore Kukareva on Twitter. So we'll put that in the show notes and it will also be on the Padlet wall that I'll link to in the show notes as well. Um, yeah, and uh, people can also look up your profile on the um, University of Bedfordshire website, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. the Centre for Learning Excellence, right? Correct, yes. Great. Well, uh, really fascinating, really interesting stuff. And um, hopefully that will inspire some people to go out and try and use some object-based learning in their own um, classrooms. If you have any ideas about how you could use this in your classroom, then please do get in touch with us. Um, um, and also, you know, feel free to get in touch with Maria about it because I think we're, we're both interested in kind of developing this more and developing conversations around this. Mm. Thanks, Tab. Definitely, I'll be very happy to talk to anybody. And the colleagues who I mentioned, Anne Lawrence and Kat Cool, we are actually working on a series of case studies that we will be publishing um, around the topics that I've outlined. So, formulating research questions, critical thinking, literature search, etc. Um, so, this is something we'll be very happy to share. Brilliant. Yeah, we'll look forward to that. Um, thank you very much for the interview. It's been great having you on the show.